Welcome to the MFR Coaches Podcast, where we talk about how you can create a six-figure MFR practice. I'm your host, Heather Hommel. Not only have I been practicing MFR for 11 years, I'm also a life and business coach, especially for MFR therapists. My goal is for you to understand how to get fully booked, how to talk to your clients, and how to make sure they understand what's possible for them with MFR treatment. I'm here to help you stop under earning, overworking, and burning out. I'll lend support so you can create the MFR practice you've always wanted. Learn how you can do it too, even if you live in a tiny town, and even if you're just starting out, and even if you've ran your practice for years. Let's go. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the MFR Coaches Podcast. We have a fun guest with me today, Marco Gordon. She is a business, money, and investment coach, and also a mastermind sister of mine. And that is why I have this awesome opportunity to know her, to get coached by her, to get all of her advice and wisdom, and then to bring her onto this program so that she can share all of it with you too. So welcome, Mariko, to the program. I am so happy you stopped by. How are you? I am great. And I just want to say thanks for having me. MFR is such a great modality. And it's really made a big difference for me just to to kind of learn how to relax mm-hmm. into each sort of... All the layers. All the layers. All yeah. the layers. Like I think, oh, I'm relaxed. And then I find another layer and another layer. So I'm yeah. thrilled to be speaking with you and your community. Awesome. Well, thank you for being here. And I had to say, I was so impressed when I came to the mastermind, there's like 30 other women in this mastermind. And I always introduce myself. I'm like, hi, I'm Heather Hommel. And I help myofascial release therapists grow six-figure businesses. And most people are like, what in the hell is MFR? <laughs> so I already have someone that has not only received the work, but understands the work, loves the work, gets it regularly seeks it out. Like that's so fun for me to know that it's like a mainstream thing. Like there is one in 30 that at least know what's going on. (laughs) Yeah. So you're my favorite just because of that. (laughs) That's the first reason. I will totally take it. I will totally take it. And I want all the MFR therapists in the world to just be wildly successful because I think the world really, really needs Yes. That modality. So you heard it first. <laughs> That's right. MFR therapist Mariko is rooting for you. I'm rooting for you. Let's go. Okay. So we are here to talk about what to do when your income starts to increase. And this is what is happening for all of the MFR therapists that are working for me, which is such a fun side effect of working with MFR therapists. Uh-huh. You know, they're going from two and three thousand dollar months to now like ten thousand dollar months, seventeen thousand dollar months, and they're noticing that their thoughts about money aren't actually any better. Like the scarcity is not gone when you're making that kind of money. Mm-hmm. You have the same amount of scarcity brain as you did when you made two and $3,000 or even $0 a month. So let's talk about that. What are your thoughts? <laughs> okay. Oh, I have so many thoughts. Let me start at the beginning. I would say first thing is that's important is to have, you know, I think self-acceptance and self-compassion or like key to living a full and rich and contented life. Mm -hmm. And so we need to be a little kinder to ourselves when oftentimes our financial circumstances can change a lot faster than our mindset. And I think just being able to sort of observe that without judgment is important and that there are an awful lot of unconscious money scripts that we have been taught or that we've absorbed. And they can really cause a lot of sabotage 
So, you know, the same way that we self-sabotage in so many other ways, whether it's our health, our diets, or the way we run our businesses, mm-hmm. you know, that same fractal, that same little saboteur in our brain is going to also work with money. It's going to yeah. be the same thing. So it's important to just be a, understand that and be okay with that. Having said that, there are things that you can do that will help. <laughs> yeah. Do you have like some examples or like what is your favorite thing to tell people that have that saboteur brain still in high functioning? Like it's just there <laughs> coming in hot every day. I'd say the secret weapon for that is to automate, to okay. stop letting your brain have to make decisions all the time. So make it rather than like, if you think of a decision tree, right, where there's a decision to be made, yes, no. And then each one leads to another yes, no, yes, no. And then at the end of it, you have a giant Christmas tree, right? So just make one decision at the top of the tree rather than have to make a thousand decisions over and over again. Because every time that decision door is open, there's an opportunity to make a decision that's not really the one that your kind of more frontal lobal brain would want you to take. Yes. Or it's that part where like you just don't make a decision, right? Like you just oh, have that's bad. Yeah. a lot of money sitting in the bank or no yeah. money because you can't decide what to do with it. You just spend it. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So if you automate the funds and you start very early, mm-hmm. like not just when, oh, when I make $100,000, that's when I'll start. You should start now. So even if you're living kind of break even-ish, right? mm-hmm. you know, if you have an extra dollar or $5, even if that small amount to start either saving it for the emergency fund or start investing it, putting it in a low cost index fund. Mm-hmm. That way, when you have $20, when you have $100, when you have $5,000 extra, you're already in that habit of taking care of it and not thinking about it. Yeah. And so it sounds like you really have to look at your money quite often and be touching your money so that you know if you have $1 or $5 extra, like really knowing your facts around the money? Yeah, I would say it's a kind of a fine line because I think sometimes you have to know yourself, right? So if you're like, for me, I was a point where I was very stressed out. I had gained a lot of weight. I was at 209 pounds and I lost like 40 pounds over the course of a year, very gradually. And for me, like weighing myself every day was good because there was no judgment around it for me. It was just information. Yep. Because I know it fluctuates or whatever, but it was a way to kind of recommit to myself So it wasn't a source of like mind drama. It was a source of self-love. Yeah, like data collection. (laughs) Exactly, right? Curiosity about data and not judgment about data. And I think if you can do that with your money, then every month, fine. If it's going to make you crazy, don't do it every month or don't do it every day. Or, Mm -hmm. you know, so you kind of have to know yourself. If you're going to be that personality that's going to make it mean a lot of really bad things, do it less often. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. And there's tricks for this too. Cause I'm also a coach in the stop dieting forever coaching program with Jennifer Dent Brown. And one of her mm-hmm. things is, is like using data to help you long-term and that requires weighing in every day and watching the mind drama that is created. So I think this is such a perfect example. Yeah. I went from a person that never weighed myself because I thought that was actually more mentally healthy, right? Mm-hmm. To just like not know the information. And then I noticed when I started to do it, like I would make certain numbers mean something about the kind of day that I could have or the kind of food I could have. But over time, by changing that relationship between the weight and the reward or the weight, and if I got to feel good about myself, I got to decide I could feel good about myself no matter what. And over time, that weight would just naturally trend down. Like the number had no power over my mood. 
anymore yeah. and still doesn't even as it goes up or down with just the normal courses of life and how active I am and how much I drink, quite frankly. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's a sneaky one. They'll get you. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's so many corollaries between sort of money psychology and money habits and food mm-hmm. habits and psychology. So if you tend to be a, you know, if you buffer your emotions by emotional eating, you're going to be buffering your emotions with like emotional spending, for example. Yeah. Ooh, so good. Yeah. So good. Okay. So let's break this down for MFR therapists who maybe have no exposure to money management. Mm -hmm. A lot of people I work with, like they're letting their spouses run their business, like the financial side, and then they really have no idea how much money they have left over for both like their salary and to cover their expenses or anything coming down the road. Right. What do you say about that? I think there are a lot of us and women, I would say, especially, but also people who don't grow up with money or don't grow up with families where money is talked about, or they don't grow up in families where there's a family business or there's entrepreneurship, right? So they're not used to sort of discussion around money. It can be really loaded. Like I meet people who almost have trauma when they open up spreadsheets about their business, right? Mm. And it really breaks my heart because intimacy with your business right? Whether it's in how you run it in coherence with your values, you know, your business is your performance art. It's an expression of your soul, of your creativity and not being willing to look at the numbers or to get comfortable hearing the story that your business is telling you is like a whole layer of intimacy that you're missing with your business. It'd be like being in a marriage and like having no sex, Mm-hmm. You know, or like yeah. being in a marriage where you have lots of sex, but you never talk about your feelings. <laughs> yeah. Right. So it really breaks my heart because there's a whole layer of relationship of intimacy that's missing because we make numbers mean very judgy things. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, it doesn't mean you have to understand double entry bookkeeping, but it does mean that you have to be willing to ask a lot of questions, challenge assumptions. And it's so easy for us to just give away our sovereignty to mm. our spouse or the accountant or the financial person or whatever and go, oh, whatever. And you're just not connected to your business. Yeah. That reminds me about something we talked about earlier, like in one of our first coaching sessions together, mm-hmm. where I was asking you about like investing in my IRA. And I said, you know, like I've usually just left this up to other people. I write the check and blah, blah, blah. But most recently I became interested in it and started to really look at my money and found out that the people that I had trusted to invest for me, like held money and like didn't invest it for six months. And I didn't know if that was a problem or not. Right. And you were like, thank goodness you've discovered that. And then you can make different decisions. Right. It's like, it's okay. It's, I mean, it's not okay that that happened, but because I was willing to look at it and not be afraid of it, I could make different decisions. Mm -hmm. And now I know going forward, that's not going to happen to me again because I know what to look for. Yeah. I think I had a few choice curse words about your financial (laughs) advisor. Yes. And all the F words. (laughs) Quite a few F bombs because it was really malpractice, honestly. But I think what happened is that, especially when there's an area that somebody's an expert at, like, I don't know, the car mechanic, right? You show yeah. up and you go, whatever, take my car, do whatever, sting me with the bill. And we don't ask the kinds of questions gauged, like, mm, what's really going on here? And you actually were wondering what was going on. 
Yeah. So you were totally like checking in and being in touch with your money. You were wondering what was going on. You just didn't take the next step of really kind of asking and challenging why. And I think what can happen is we think, well, I don't know anything about this. They must know something about this. They must be doing this for a reason. Yeah. Because it never occurs to us that maybe it's just malpractice and they forgot about the account or something yeah. like really stupid like that. Right? Yeah. Which is probably what happened. Yeah. We'll never <laughs> yeah, know. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally what happened. But I mean, it's the only logical conclusion that you come mm-hmm. to. But so I think that that's the important thing is to remember this is such an important lesson. Always follow the money. Mm-hmm. So if you are paying somebody, you are the client. And even if you were paying the Pope, right? You're the client. Yeah. <laughs> right. And or the Dalai Lama, you're the client. And so what you don't want to do is give up your sovereignty and your money at the same time. <laughs> yeah. And don't be afraid to ask questions. I think I'm yeah. totally guilty of this. Like it was so uncomfortable for me to not understand the money, it was uncomfortable for me to ask questions or to explore, right? And I would get just sweaty, sick to my stomach almost anytime like taxes rolled around or any kind of interaction with this accountant because like it seemed like they just knew more than me. And I was always kind of in trouble, not because of anything they were saying, but because of the thoughts going on in my mind about me and my ability to earn money and know what to do with it. So I'm noticing that too with my MFR therapist. We've done some money investigation. You know, we get our facts and I've hired other coaches to come in and talk about money. And some of them are like white knuckling it through these courses on the money. And it's so uncomfortable that they're like leaving their bodies and checking out. And they're like, I'll leave it for another day when I finally feel comfortable. And it's like, that day might never come. Like it may come when you're willing to feel uncomfortable, right? But some other things we've investigated and and uncovered are where sovereignty is being given away is like to that bookkeeper, to that accountant that you have a long-term relationship with and you have no Mm. idea exactly like what you're paying for. For instance, I have one client that's paying over $1,000 a month for her accountant and he's not even doing bookkeeping or anything. Oh, yeah. And so like over time, that's a lot of money. And so now that she can see that that's not a realist, that's not like what anyone else is paying or even in the realm of what other people are paying for even payroll. Now she can make a decision, make a new decision. Right. And I'm hoping that she is. So if you're listening out there, you know who you are. Make sure you take care of that. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's so important, especially when we're just starting out. It's really easy not to know what the norms are, which is why I think it's so great that you're creating a community for MFR therapists, because then you can also refer people who you're happy with. And because the thing with accounting is that also just having the right match between the client and the firm, because some accounting firms, they're going to have minimums yep. and it's kind of how their cost structure is set up and the kind of practice that they do. So part of it is just knowing how to look for the right accountant, providing yeah. the right service. It doesn't mean that the accountant's bad. It just means that you're the wrong client for them because you know they're geared after a different level of complexity because really at a thousand dollars a month you're paying for a certain kind of guidance and consult business advice almost yeah. you know that you may not need for the kind of solo practice that you have. Exactly. Oh the other thing I wanted to say actually this is important is that you know how you were feeling uncomfortable about asking questions of your tax advisors or your I think it's important to pay attention to that mm-hmm. because you want a business advisor 
you know, you need to manage your service providers. You want them to think of them as partnering with you, right? So that if they make you feel uncomfortable, so you have to sort out how much is your stuff and how much is their stuff, right? But it's really easy for service providers to be dismissive of women, mm-hmm. to be dismissive of people who aren't conversant in the language of business, right? So if you feel like you've been slimed every time you talk to your advisor, or if you feel you've been condescended to or patronized, it is worth finding somebody who will be delighted, who wants to have a happy relationship with you, who wants you to really understand what they're saying. Yes. And who thinks of you that way. So it's important because we all have money stuff and sometimes it's our projection, but oftentimes I find particularly that we dismiss our intuition and our gut feeling. Yeah. And I think it's important to pay attention to that. And if you have that feeling, any kind of discomfort around money and your business and your service providers is worth looking at under a microscope and sorting out what's you and what's them. Yeah. I love that too. And at the same time, you can sort out like, what was your parents' story and what are the facts? Like, right. what do you want to keep taking with you? What's serving you? What isn't serving you? And, exactly. Yeah. And yeah, you yeah. don't have to stay stuck in the paradigm of like your parents' money story or your grandparents' money story, or you can only work hard in order to have money. Right. This idea that making money can't be easy and fun because it can be. Yeah. If you do what you love, it can be. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And when you set it up like that on purpose. Right. Yeah. That's the most fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You just create it on purpose. Exactly. Because you're, yeah, your systems and processes support that point of view. Okay. So going back to automating and you were saying like, you have a decision tree, you make one decision for your money. Yeah. What does that look like? What is that very first decision? I would say the first two key things. One is making sure that you understand that you're putting money aside for taxes. So okay. what can happen, especially in the U.S., is that you know if you had a $25,000 year and then the next year you have a $50,000 year and you haven't paid estimated taxes, you're going to have a huge tax bill come April and you're going to have to start paying estimated taxes. Mm-hmm. And that can come. So that can be a really big number. And if you haven't provided for it, you can have a real cash crunch, which feeds the scarcity mentality. So part of it, and but people get hung up on this all the time because if you're not used to thinking that way, it's just not going to occur to you. So it's worth finding out, like the minute you make more than you made the year before, is to find out again with your accountant or just even if you can figure out what your tax rate was, to start socking away that money in your tax money. And then going forward, even like, I know someone who just takes 30% of her coaching income right off the top and puts it in an account for taxes. Mm-hmm. Well, do you think it needs to be that drastic? Or like, what about taking like your income minus your expenses and then taking the 30% on that leftover money? Yeah, absolutely. I guess it depends what your overhead would be as an MFR therapist, because if you have rental space and so on, it could be more. So yeah. So let's just call it a percentage off of whatever you're sort of after your expenses, if you know what that is. If you don't, just be conservative. You know, it doesn't hurt you. Yeah. And I highly recommend figure it the F out, like figure yes. out what your expenses are, at least on average. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> there's, there's no reason not to know. Yeah. There's no reason not to know. Exactly. You don't get rich being an ostrich. No. It's not even like rich, like just a pile of money. I just yeah. mean rich, like a rich life. Because when you're an ostrich, you're feeding anxiety. You're not feeding yeah. confidence. Because your head's in the sand. Yeah. Exactly. And your butt is up in the air. Your butt's in the air. Yeah. <laughs> and it doesn't do you any good not to know. Because you. chances are you have a lot more cash flow. Mm-hmm. 
when you know the facts and you're not living from scarcity and making decisions from that, like you do inevitably like earn more money and have more money because it's not a secret what your tax bill is going to be. Yeah. And you make decisions from an informed place. So by definition, there'll be better decisions. Exactly. Yeah. So I'd say take care of taxes right away because that is something I see people get shipwrecked on all the time and that's Mm -hmm. not necessary. The second thing I would do is make sure that you have, you build an emergency fund, right? So a rule of thumb is like six months worth of living expenses or whatever. So it's kind of like the stuff that you absolutely have to pay, right? Your rent, that kind of thing. Yeah. Would you do that like both within your business and personally? So like you'd slowly build it for like emergencies to cover like your your overhead in your business and then outside of your business? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of hard sometimes when our, our business and our personal lives get entwined, particularly if you're a single owner LLC, kind of the mm-hmm. way you do taxes is, is an integrated way, but it's not a bad way to think about it, right? Because look, if something happens to you that you can't practice and you have an office, you're still going to have to pay rent. You're still yep. going to have to pay whatever software tools you use, right? So there's a certain amount you're going to have to pay, you know, unless you have like business interruption insurance or something. And then personally, you also have all those personal bills. So it just depends on the mental accounting. But basically, your business overhead and your personal overhead add up to a number. You need to cover that number, whether you put it all in your personal bucket rather than your business bucket. This is where your tax advisor can be helpful, Yep. right? Because if sometimes in some business structures, you kind of have to pay everything out. So whatever the nut is, mm-hmm. you should have six months worth to cover the nut, at least three, preferably six to really kind of buy you breathing time for whatever the nut is. What bucket you store that nut <laughs> in <laughs> It really depends. And that's where an accountant comes in handy. Okay. There are tax implications. There are all sorts of other business implications, but dollar wise, the nut should include both for sure. And these are like six months worth of bare minimum necessities. Like we're not talking about like factoring in for Starbucks or MFR seminars or like any of that. This is right. What do you need to survive on? Like your rent, your mortgage, your food and clothing. Yeah, you could wear the same clothes for six months, right? Yeah, totally. Think of it as actually our mastermind sister came up with this great term, minimal viable expense. Oh, that's right. Lat fat. Yeah. I just interviewed her too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So your minimal viable expense. I love that. So yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's the stuff where you've got to pay. Now you might be able to negotiate a little rent delay, whatever, but basically it's the stuff you have to pay. Yeah. And I think we all found that out in uh, COVID when we I were bet. shut down and voluntarily. Yeah. You know, like I paid for an entire year when I decided to like not go back and to become a coach, you know, I paid rent for an entire year Yeah, and I was happy to be able to do that. I didn't want to stiff anyone. It wasn't his fault that I changed career paths or that COVID happened, but down the line, somebody ends up having to pay that bill. Right. You need to make sure like you're responsible for your own stuff and not dependent on someone giving you a pass. Right. Or they'll litigate, which makes it even more expensive. Exactly. So that would be the first priority. Take care of the tax man first. Mm-hmm. And secondly, put aside that. And you can just build it a little at a time if, if that's all you have. But the point is that you're taking action. Yeah. Like even if it's $10 at a time and it takes you exactly. five years to get that emergency fund, it's better than nothing. And Absolutely. you're not wrong for it taking a long time. Exactly. Yeah. There's no need to make meaning for that. And also like, don't skip it just because it's going to take you 10 years to build it up. Like don't skip it either. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So we've got save for taxes, build your emergency fund. Yeah. And the emergency fund should be invested in something that's liquid. Okay. And something where your 
you know, not going to lose it. So if you put it in the stock market and the market's down 20% and you have an emergency, you have less money available to you. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, inflation is so high and interest rates are still so low that you're kind of losing money. The money in your bank account is actually shrinking every year (laughs) or your savings account. That's good to know, right? Because I think I have a lot of clients with scarcity that have yeah. 10, 20, 30, 40, $50,000. Like you'd never know they have this much money just sitting there in their yeah. account. And they're like, I'm super poor. And I'm like, no. <laughs> yeah. I can tell you because I've, I coach multimillionaires. Yeah. That even if you have $6 million in the bank, 100% sure that you're going to be on the street homeless the next day. Yeah. The number in the bank it doesn't does go away. not change your brain. Yeah, exactly. You need to change your brain. I think that's the hardest concept to like believe. Yeah, but it is so true. Yeah. It is so true. I love it. It's so fascinating. Okay. Yeah. So liquid investing. So like what does that mean for and like keep it real simple for me because I get confused. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a little bit of a trade-off. Uh savings, money markets, short-term CDs, like a three-month CD maybe, you know, or because okay. then what you can do is you can do what's known as laddering. So you'll have a CD kind of maturing every month. Oh, smart. Okay. So that way it's a CD, you get a little bit more interest, but if you need the money, it's available and then you could just roll it forward. And depending on your risk tolerance, if you say you had six months, you might just sort of say, you know what, I'm going to keep three months super liquid and I'm going to take three months and I'm going to buy something that is pretty conservative. So maybe blue chip stocks where there's an income, there's a dividend that they pay. Mm -hmm. And so there's some appreciation from it. If the market's down 20%, they're probably not going to be down that much maybe. And in the meantime, you'll have the income that you're reinvesting. And you can also do that. It just depends on your A, your personal safety net and B, your personal risk tolerance. Okay. So you know, if inflation weren't the problem that it is today, I would probably not suggest that necessarily. But I like the idea you have three months, it's super liquid super mm-hmm. accessible, super liquid. Another three months that in your mind is conservative. It's something that you should in theory not lose your shirt. And the, the other thing too, is that if the market is that down, you know, you still have a chunk of money that you set aside for this. Yeah. Like your three months plus that, that's pretty reasonable. Okay. And then after that, I would say that the way that I would think of the buckets of money is one, I call it the joy tithe, right? But you should enjoy your money, mm-hmm. right? And I think a lot of us, you know, if we have a scarcity mindset around money, money is like a, a fraught thing. And we have a very dysfunctional relationship with it. Like we don't know how to enjoy it. We don't know how to be friends with it. We don't know how to be lovers with it. Yeah. But it's intentional, right? So if you go and you, I don't know, have a bad breakup and you go on a shopping spree, that's not really great. If you say, I'm going to take 10% of whatever I make and I'm going to spend it on whatever I want for me, like whatever, guilt-free. Yeah. That is much more intentional, right? Yeah. That's fun too. Yeah. And if you decide that, like you're probably always going to have that 10%, which could really add up over time, especially like if you're starting to create five-figure months. Yeah. But because you're sort of kind of putting it away in that sort of joy box, right? You can go, holy crap, I can go to Paris for a week. Yeah. How fun. And so sometimes saving for it specifically, actually, I have a great story I want to share with you. Mm -hmm. I have a really good friend who used to run a small inn in the Berkshires. And that can be challenging, right? Because you can have people who show up who are, and so a lot of our clientele were like really entitled, obnoxious New Yorkers. (laughs) I lived in New York for like 30 years. And sometimes they just have a nightmare client. Yeah. And she was an amazing chef and, and everything else. And, but anyway, people who are just real jerks. So what she would do is she would take 
the money from that weekend, from that the proceeds from the jerky, horrible people. And she would put it in this sort of cast iron piggy bank, literally an iron pig. And she would put that money in there. And that money was exclusively to be used for fun for her. Love it. For putting up with the bullshit. Yeah, for putting up with the pigs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was like kind of combat pay, right? Yeah. So I think that's also a nice thing is, you know, have a joy tithe of, on your re- revenue that's like for you to have fun. But also if you have like a really bad day, you're like, you know what? I'm going to take that $150 from that session with that nightmare client. <laughs> and I'm going to put that in the equivalent of the pig. Yeah, And then that, I don't know. I just think that's a, a form of very powerful sort of self-care, you know, where you go, you know what? It's okay. You haven't ruined my day because I'm going to have fun. Yeah. I love because of you being a jerk, I'm actually going to have fun. It's just like, it changes the whole dynamic. So putting some money aside for fun isn't really important because if you're just chasing money for money, it's like burnout. Yeah. We'll create burnout because it's never enough. Exactly. It's never enough to create your safety. You have to create your safety. Absolutely. Absolutely. So there's that. The other piece too is also to invest. So this is so important. So important, right? And which is why even if you start with the smallest amount, Mm -hmm. one of the eighth wonders of the world is compounding, the power of compounding. And what that means is that if you're 25 years old and you earn 5% a year for the next 40 years, right? You will have more money than somebody who starts a few years later. I don't know. And I don't know the exact math, whether it's 30 or 35, right? But a few years later and earns 8% a year. Yeah. Why? Compounding. Because that 5% a year, then your growth happens on a bigger number. And then the following year, the growth happens on a bigger number. It is massive, the impact. So the sooner you start, the better. So time is your friend in investing. Yeah. And it's totally. not too late. Like say Never you're too late. 30 years old, 35, 40, you're 42 like me. And I just recently started yeah. investing. Like I always just relied on my husband, right? Like everything will be fine. Yeah. Yeah. And I used to think like, oh, I don't really need to do it. But now I want to do it yeah. because I have no idea what the future holds and I want to be financially successful on my own. Yeah. So I think that's really important because people tend to, well, this is another thing that I've noticed in my practice is that people who are good savers will often oversave in illiquid accounts. So what I mean by that is that they'll do as much money in the 401k as possible. Yep. They'll put money in the 529 for the kids' college, right? They'll prepay their mortgage. Yep. And then they have really no liquid emergency fund. I feel like you're in my bank account right now. Like that is like exactly <laughs> what we did. And we're always like, why don't we have any money? Right. And like right. the idea of prepaying your mortgage, you don't need to do that. Like you're not saving anything really. Yeah. What's interesting about that. And there is a calculation and maybe at some point I'll actually like bird dog the spreadsheet. Right. Yeah. But here's the thing, right? Your 401k, yes, you can borrow against it. Right. But it's a process. If you need money tomorrow, you're not going to get it tomorrow. And if you take money out, there's a penalty with your house, you know, you'd have to take a home equity loan, right? Again, a process and nobody lends you money when you need it. Nobody right. lends you money yeah, when like you actually need it, right? South when you need it. Yeah. And they're like, sorry, you're a credit risk. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Meanwhile, you're like, but I pay, you know, so we think of that money equity in the house is almost like it's a tangible 
bank account, right? It is a tangible thing, but it's not like that. It's a little more phantom than that. You have to sell your house to realize that equity, or you have to get people to lend you money against that equity, Mm -hmm. right? Both of which are not like sure things about exactly how much money you're going to get. And the thing with prepaying is that, yes, if you borrow money and you don't pay down your mortgage, you will end up paying, you know, five times what you paid for your house because of you're just always paying so much interest. Yes. However, if you take that money that you're prepaying and you invest it, over the 30 years, you're more likely to actually make more money. Now, again, it just caveat depends on the market cycles, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But that has the opportunity to grow. So that's the Mm trade-off. Right. And the other thing too, is at least in the U S your mortgage expense is deductible, depending, I think on where you are, your tax bracket. So it is a calculation that you can do. So if you have a lot of extra, sure. Prepay your whole goddamn mortgage. Yeah. Right. (laughs) <laughs> and like live an unlevered life and you figure nobody, you know, as long as I pay my real estate taxes and my utility bills, no yeah. one's going to like, I can, you know, right. Yeah. But it's easy for us to look at that big number and go, oh my God, we owe $300,000 on the house and I'm making 80,000 a year. Right. Mm-hmm. Or that's gross. So let's just say net is 40,000 in cash that you get at the end. And that number looks so small relative to that big number for the debt. Right. And people want to get that big number down. Again, it's like a fear response. Yeah. And meanwhile, they don't have the cash to provide them with the liquidity. So they're over saving in things that are illiquid and they think, well, it's good. Yes, saving is good, but you need to save across the spectrum to give you flexibility. And so I think people tend to do that because it's it's obvious, like you get your mortgage payment every month. So it's yeah. in your face. Your 401k gets taken out of your salary if you have one, or if you do a SEP IRA, if you're independently employed, you know, you kind of do it probably one more sum at the end of the year. Yep. And the 520, you know, like all that, those messages are in my face. And the thing with investing is that it can be, well, fuck, I don't know anything about it. And it gets scary and intimidating. And I would just say, you can do the simplest thing. You can just look up Vanguard, target date fund for when you're retirement date might be. And just say, let's look and see what they're invested in, in their funds. Because there'll be a combination of what's a Vanguard S&P 500 index, plus some bond thing, whatever, whatever your age is. That's the easiest thing you can do. Is it the most optimized, whatever, to your specific circumstances? No, but it's going to be 80 to 90% correct. Okay. And you don't have to think about it. Or you can just stick it in the Vanguard fund itself, the target date fund. Yeah. You can also do that. I think that's what I ended up doing. Yeah. Just pick it and go on, move on. Yeah. Because the important thing is that it's invested and it's growing. Mm -hmm. And even when you have, you know, an extra, you have a windfall, a birthday, your mom gives you an extra, you know, a hundred dollars to go. And you're like, oh, you know what? I'll just throw it in the fund. That money will grow. So it's easy to like be saving for like a very specific target. Mm -hmm. I'm saving for a house down payment. It's also important to sort of save for investing. Yeah. Because that's where the, the wealth building Right. right. And you don't have to make it complicated. You can just say, you know, just start the habit. And then when the pot gets big enough, you can get, or you get interested, you can get more sophisticated about it. But just that compounding alone is just massive. I mean, like I've done that where, you know, I've opened like a, put $500 when, you know, a friend's kid is born and $100 for a birthday, Christmas, whatever. Mm-hmm. And it grows to be thousands. Yeah. That's so fun. Yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> It's really amazing. Yeah. You don't have to start with 500. You could start with $25 and then just keep putting it in as you have it. You don't have to wait for the end of the year to put in your $5,500 or whatever. Yeah. And in fact, you're better off 
you're actually better off if you invest it level loaded through the year. Yeah. And that never even occurred to me until you said that to me. I was like, oh, why would I do that? Now, like I for sure, I'm going to do that yeah. regularly. Because what happens, right? Let's just think about March of 2020 when the market was just in the toilet, right? Mm-hmm. Or even more recently when you have this pullback because of what's going on with in Ukraine. And so if you're in every month putting in like $250 a month, you know, you're going to buy more shares of an index when the market's down, you buy less when it's up, but you're in there every month and dollar cost averaging is what's called dollar cost averaging. And you start compounding earlier, right? Because mm-hmm. you start compounding 250 bucks in January, as opposed to like 5,500 bucks at the end of December. So that's a good thing. Now it can be hard when you're, you have your own practice and your income can go up and down and you're not Sure. And then, because again, once that money's in their IRA, getting it out's a problem. Right. So if you're like a little too hand to mouth, maybe you wait until you have that cushion. But when you have that cushion and you can start saving for that cushion and you go, you know, I just want to stay a little liquid. Yeah. But once you have that cushion, then getting in the habit of doing a monthly allocation, or this is where, to your point, if you know what your monthly numbers are, you're like, you know what? This is safe to do, right? Yeah, exactly. Like knowing your data provides you is like the trust that you've made good decisions ahead of time and you can just take action now on what you intend to do, what you want to do instead of waiting for it to work out. Yeah. And I think just as a general practice, I mean, honestly, I would opt for just sock it away. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're like, oh crap, you take two weeks off, something comes up and you can't work for two weeks and you have a low month. Remember you have your emergency fund, so you should have some money to to help cover. But it also, then you can kind of think, be creative about like, all right, well, then what do I do next month to do more? Or it just makes you more resourceful. But meanwhile, you're, you're in that habit already of that money being set aside. That's the most important thing is stop piling on the cognitive load of making a lot of decisions. Stop making it like, oh my God, if I don't pick the right fund, the important thing is to put money to work. Yes. Yeah. Make it easy on yourself. We don't have to make this complicated. Exactly. Okay. So we're at, we're putting money aside for taxes. We're setting up our emergency fund. We've got our joy box of money that we can spend on whatever. We're going to invest for compounding reasons. Now, Uh what's next? There's a few things, right? I think getting fluent in the language of business money is really good so that then you can start making decisions about your business differently. The other thing that we could talk about a bit is debt, right? It's interesting to me because I see, and part of me is still a little puzzled about this, that debt is a neutral. It is a tool, a financial tool, Yeah, right? It's a financial tool that can help create wealth and it's a financial tool that can help destroy wealth. Yeah. And right now the pendulum is kind of swinging a bit, right? So I think there's like this guy, Dave Ramsey, who's like very anti-debt, right? And the thing is debt has been used, like you think of the company store. I mean, my grandparents came over from Okinawa to Hawaii to work in the plantation, Mm -hmm. right? And the company store, that kind of thing. They were an indentured servitude. They had a contract. They bought out their contract. But debt is a way to keep people stuck stuck and enslaved i mean yeah like literally by overcharging for things and exploitative consumer credit where you're charging outrageous rates for things and people never get out of that debt cycle yeah on the other hand there's a demonization of debt means that then people are who could take on a healthy amount of debt for their business or whatever just assume it's all bad and it's not it could be a very powerful tool 
And I get a little nervous when I see this whole, that is good. That is good. It's been used. You know, and I'm like, mm-hmm. I've seen when debt can crush you. Yeah. Right. And in business, you know, it's called, you call it leverage. It makes it sound nicer, but you're really using debt to really increase your returns, but you're also taking on a lot more risk and it can go south and bad quickly. Yeah. So there's like, you have to know your balance. Yeah. Like this goes back to really knowing your facts. So I know some therapists come for coaching and like their number one concern is spending that $3,000. Like uh-huh. maybe they don't have the liquidity to just pay for that in cash. So they're charging it on a credit card. So a lot of shame around that and fear. Yeah. Right. And I mean, I get it. I carried $10,000, $30,000 on a credit card for a decade. Like I just could not shake that yeah. debt. And then, you know, eventually I did. I had to start looking at it in a different way too. Yes. That is so interesting. And I think it's so right because it's if it's a source of shame, then you feel bad about yourself. You're like, oh my God, I have credit card debt. Right. Yeah. Instead of seeing it as I'm using credit card debt as a tool, as a method, as a leverage, as an investment in myself yeah. that will pay off. And then I'll have paid 21% in interest for six months or whatever, however long, right? Yeah. But I'm determined to get out of say Heather's program what I need to know so that I'm tripling my my income. Yeah. And I pay this off in three months. Yeah. I think there's this disconnect between like charging that yeah. and like the actual part where you make enough that you can just pay it off, right? Yeah. Even if you make more, if you're still waiting for the other shoe to drop, because you're still making decisions from that brain, that traumatized brain, it's hard to see the bigger picture. But like my number one goal with my clients is like, yes, like this investment you're making, like it's just enough for it to be painful. For some people, extremely painful. Yeah. But my goal is for you to make that back within our first 90 days together. And then hopefully you come for more coaching so your brain isn't still the brain that had the trouble making that decision in the first place, yeah. right? Like your brain is changing as you get coached more and more. So yeah, do you make the investment over and over again? You do, but the return on the investment, you go from making $2,000 a month to making $10,000 a month over and over and over again. Like there aren't really stocks that you can invest in that your return right. is that quick. Exactly. And the ability to get that return is in your hands. Right. Yeah. It's how much you pay attention, how much you're willing to do the inner work, and how much effort you put in, like good, healthy effort. And realizing, like, when you're your best referral source as a therapist, yes, you can just go make money on demand. Like, you could go and sell a bunch of packages to everybody that walks in your office to increase your cash flow, or you could work a Saturday. Right. You know, there's like so many opportunities for you to just make that money. I yeah. think when we're in scarcity and we're afraid, we don't even think about all of those. Right. right. Exactly. Because you're not thinking creatively. You're, you know, I call it the rock being closed. Mm-hmm. When you're in that flight response, your brain is not thinking properly. Yeah. Like you're just like, nope, there's no opportunities. I'm never going to make that money back. Yeah. Which is sad for me because I'm like, no, you can. It's really easy. Yeah. And <laughs> like, we'll figure it you out. You have to be open to it. Yeah. And I think the other thing that I wanted to talk about, because this brings up a really good point, is sometimes people have like rules around money mm-hmm. and it's hard for them to think about money in a flowy kind of a way. Yeah. So timing, right? So timing of cash flows, 
is really important and can throw people off. And I'll give you an example because it's better to kind of talk about a concrete. I have a friend of mine who was in my coaching training class who's a weight loss coach. And she's also like a very advanced, sophisticated, you know, a, a nurse anesthetist. Mm-hmm. And she had a rule for her business that she wanted the business to be self-sustaining. So it needed to throw off whatever cash that then she was going to invest. And you're like, okay, fine. That's reasonable, right? But here's what happened. So I was telling her about joyful marketing, which is the marketing program, the evergreen program that our mastermind uh, teacher, Simone Soul has. And I was telling her, you know, and it's 2,500. And I was saying, Brittany, you really got to do this. The stuff you're going to learn in there is going to give you, I guarantee you a 10X return on your $2,500 investment. And she was like, yeah, but I've got like, I don't know, 5,000 coming. You know, I've got to pay for my website in a month. And I have a couple of clients signed, but they haven't paid me yet. And I'm running through these numbers. I'm like, okay, so you've got basically 10,000 coming in. And it's just that you don't have it in the bank, the 2,500 in your bank account right now. Yeah. But you're counting the 5,000 that you're going to be paying later. Yeah. (laughs) You know, because somehow that expense was real, but the income wasn't. Yeah, that's totally happens for my MFR therapists too. Like they're not thinking, this is like every month going forward. Right. (laughs) So, I mean, I I don't like to bully people, but I was so adamant (laughs) that because she was so close, but her marketing just needed like that little little thing. And right away, she changed how she was sort of showing up. She just became much more real. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's phenomenal, but it was just that little bit of degree and right away, like people, all the feedback was like, oh, what you're writing about is so resonant with, you know, and she's fully booked. And yeah. She's got her sister joining her in her business. And, you know, it's all this stuff. But I'm sure by the end of the year, she will have had her, her 10X return on that. But she was having this weird, it was a weird rule in her head that she wasn't thinking of the timing of cash flow properly. Yeah. So I think that's where when I talk about like being familiar with business, it's like we have all these weird mental accounting buckets that are just logically flawed. Yes. They're full of shit. Yeah, totally. Totally. And it's worth like knowing what they are. So clean your bucket out. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Okay. Well, we are going to have to wrap this up. We might have to have you back on to talk even more because I just love everything you have to say. It's so interesting. And just like having another woman come on here and be like, don't be afraid of your business. Don't be afraid of your money. Even if your belief is that your money is very small right now, it doesn't matter. Like small money can turn into big money and you can invest $5 at a time. Yeah. Anything like as soon as you automate that money is going to make a big difference in your life and your business in the years to come. So I appreciate you coming in. Where can people find you if they were interested in working with you? I'm all over the place. Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. But I would say Facebook is probably the most common place where you can read all of my rants about like lousy financial advisors. (laughs) And uh, they are funny. I will say that. But I also have a website, uh, marikogordon.com. So it's M-A-R-I-K-O-G-O-R-D-O-N. Okay. And I'm going to be developing more resources and things for, for people as I work more and more with people. I understand the reefs that people sort of end up getting shipwrecked on. And so yeah, I'm actually really excited about that because I think there's a lot. And I just want women to run their businesses from a place of their integrity with their own souls, with the confidence and, and competence that they have. And that is just the most satisfying thing is to watch people get in touch with their own power yeah. and bring it forward. And I know you know this because this is what you're doing, but there's so much bullshit that we're fed all the freaking time. 
And I just love knocking down the bullshit, like one peg at a time. Yeah. And now that there are like fractional shares and acorns and something, it's easier than ever to invest $5 at a time. And you just start the habit. That's the most important thing. Start the habit. Yeah. I love it. I love that so much. And it's true. Like women, we don't have to run a business like men do in order to be successful. We don't have to do it the way we've been told our whole lives. And like success can look different in a lot of different layers. And you just have to figure out which layer you like, what feels good to you and what lens you want to filter your business through. For me, that's joy, happiness, and ease. And if it doesn't meet that filter item, I'm not doing it. Not here for it. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you for having me. This is a pleasure. All right. Thanks, everybody. I'll see you next week on the MFR Coaches Podcast. Bye. Thanks for joining me today. My goal is to help all MFR therapists stop under-earning and burning out. I have several resources available for you. Read my book, The MFR Coaches Guide to Having Your Own MFR Business, available on Amazon and at Advanced John Barnes MFR Seminars keep listening to the podcast. I'll always have fresh content each and every week. Join my group coaching program. Enrollment opens four times per year. We take all the information I teach and lay down the foundation for your six-figure MFR business. It's more than just raising rates, but you'll make that the hardest part. Then expand into the business owner who delivers your rate like it's just the news and who can sell MFR to anyone in any situation. I'll show you how. Get on my email list, follow me on social media at the MFR coach and visit my website for more information on group enrollment, the MFR Thanks for listening. And I'll see you next week.